Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello there, I'm Jason Shulman, and this is New Books in Australian and New Zealand Studies. My guest today on the podcast is the historian Meredith Lake. She's here to talk about her new book, The Bible in Australia, A Cultural History. It's published by New South Publishing in 2018. Meredith, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So, Meredith, you opened the book with the image of the surf gang leader, Kobe Aberton. Uh, maybe you could tell us what's going on with that image. Well, Kobe Aberton is the leader of a surfer tribe based at Maroubra in Sydney's southern suburbs. And he has a tattoo from shoulder to shoulder across his chest, uh, my brother's keeper. And it's a phrase from the book of Genesis, from the story of Cain and Abel, where one brother murders his other and then says to God when he's called to account, am I my brother's keeper, to kind of absolve himself of any responsibility for his brother's well-being. But when Toby Abbotton has this tattoo and the Broadway use it as their slogan, they print it on board shorts and kind of part of their surfwear range, for them... My Brother's Keeper is actually an affirmation of their loyalty to one another uh, and, and the primacy of that kind of tribal identity, their solidarity with one another. And so for me, that was, I mean, it was just a, a really compelling example of where the Bible crops up in a really surprising place, even like the hyper-masculine subculture of a suburban beach. Uh, and it's used in ways that are quite different to uh, what's traditionally been taken as the traditional meaning in the text. Uh, its meanings being subverted and reshaped and put to totally new uses. And so for me, um, that tattoo, Kobe Abedin's tattoo, pointed to some of what's so fascinating about the Bible's story. It's not just the sole property of the churches or a text of religious devotion, although it is, of course, all that as well. Uh, it has this life of its own beyond uh, what's traditionally within the confines of religious history, uh, and it's really surprising and engaging. So, so the image of Kobe Aberton with this tattoo, you know, sets you on on this, um, you know, lets you to to this great phrase that you use a few times throughout the book, and and that is that the Bible still gets under Australian skin. What what do you mean by that? I mean, picking up and playing with, I guess, that image of the tattoo. Uh, I think I think it's really appropriate to sum up the story of the Bible in Australia in that it's uh, it's 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 got a physicality to it as well as a spirituality to it. But it's, there's something indelible about it. And that's not to say that the Bible has a permanent place in Australian culture. But when we look back over the 230 years since European colonists brought the Bible to Australia as part of the baggage of their, of the cultural baggage that they brought with them, uh, we can see that it's, it's been um, a, deep, a deep place, a deep place that it occupies in Australian cultural life and in political argument and all those things. Uh, and sometimes, like tattoos, it can it can get fuzzy around the edges, like an old tattoo. Some people might regret that the Bible has this kind of influence, like some people regret their tats. Uh, but at the same time, the intricacy and the indelibility of the Bible's impact, I think, is something we're still we're still living with, even though, in many ways, our Christian faith no longer has uh, the kind of pull on the Australian imagination, the, no, no longer the same centrality to the Australian experience that it did 100 or 150 years ago. And so the tattoo image, I think, um, called my attention to that, that idea of being under the skin. And as I explored it, 
uh, through the book, uh, I found it really, uh, really explanatory in, in, in that way. You are a scholar of religious history, but, but this isn't a story just about um, you know, religion. It's really about how the Bible as a book is used in secular contexts. And, and the key thing I think that really flows throughout your book is that a lot of those spaces are contested. So how have Australians kind of fought over the Bible in, in cultural space? I think that was what attracted me to this subject, actually, as a historian of religion, as you mentioned, uh, by putting the Bible at the center of the story in the sense of what have Australians thought about it, how have they encountered it, how have they argued about it. Um, the contest uh, actually brings into the same frame and the same narrative uh, the, the, the believer and the skeptic, um, the devout and the atheist, uh, and the ability to, to look at the, the, the spectrum of responses uh, is part of what I found really exciting about this approach to Australian cultural history. Uh, but the contest, I would argue, is kind of really crucial. And it's not so much that the Bible shaped Australian culture or anything as simplistic as that, but the argument about the Bible, what it means, whether it matters, what authority it might have, what its implications might be in um, political and policy life, um, the, the dynamic of that argument, I think, has been really central to Australian uh, history and society, and, and we're still living with the legacies of some of those arguments. Uh, so, so to give an example, um, the question of what do, how does our society deal with the question of poverty and of inequality between rich and poor, it's not that the Bible produced an answer to that and that everybody followed it. There's, there's no straightforwardly Christian past or straightforwardly Christian nation in Australian history. But reading the Bible, different colonists came up with a suite of answers. So some uh, formed what's now the Benevolent Society and kind of took a charitable uh, response. Uh, a group of Christians, actually the same people who formed the Bible Society, also established what's now Westpac Bank as a savings institution to encourage the poor to save as their remedy. Others, in turn, formed what's now AMP, the insurance provider, as an insurance mutual to enable kind of the bearing of one another's burdens, uh, as according to the Book of Galatians there. And then a generation later again, you get um, unionists like William Guthrie Spence, who was a, um, a lay preacher and a Sunday school superintendent and also arguably Australia's greatest ever union organiser. And for him, uh, the aim of the new unionism was to implement something like um, the teachings of Jesus as recorded in the Gospels, uh, and so wage justice uh, being the, the, the proper response to poverty, not just charity or, or encouraging the poor to save. Uh, he famously said, you know, that Jesus said nothing in, about thrift, um, but a labourer is worthy of his hire from the book of Luke. Uh, so competing interpretations of what the Bible might mean and its implications, but those institutional legacies of that argument, be they charities or banks, or, or unions uh, are still part of the infrastructure of Australian life now. But the contest, the contest is there from the outset. What, what was the indigenous encounter with, with the Bible uh, in, in colonial Australia? You talk about how the, the Bible, Bibles were brought over on the first fleet. How, how did in, uh, indigenous Australians in, encounter the Bible? I mean, I think that's one of the most important uh, questions for an historian uh, of Australia and of Australian religion, um, and certainly of, of this story. Uh, and for me, uh, to put it, th there's no simple answer to that because the, the Bible comes with colonizing Europeans, which means Indigenous Australians first encounter it along with uh, the dispossession from the land, the destructiveness of European disease, the violence of the frontier, and the kind of the, the profound disruption 
of their existing cultures, ways of life, communities. Um, and that the fact that the Bible comes in that midst is crucial to the, its reception history, if you like, among Indigenous Australians. And it's part of what makes the Australian story of the Bible a bit distinctive, uh, because elsewhere in the South Pacific, including New Zealand, um, the European missionaries uh, weren't quite so closely... Um, they didn't arrive at quite exactly the same time as more explicitly colonising ventures. So there's always a power imbalance, but in Australia, the, the two came at exactly the same time, and that's, that's really important. And so the, one of the first Indigenous Australians to encounter the Bible, and I tell her story in the book, is um, an Eora woman called, or young woman called um, Buron, and she lived with the first chaplain for about 18 months. And so for her, she saw him reading the Bible, preaching from it, um, probably reading it uh, with his wife at home, doing his own kind of devotions as well. Uh, but for her, it was also an encounter with the technology of the book, um, for which the Eora coined a new word, a book, B-U-K, uh, the technology of writing, um, as well as the whole infrastructure of the church. Um, it came with all these things. It's not just um, what, what it was to Johnson, which was uh, the word of God. It comes with, with all this baggage. And Buron, having had a good look at this, uh, actually rejects the whole thing. She returns uh, to the surviving, um, the community of survivors around Sydney and marries Benelong uh, and never uh, adopts uh, anything that the, the chaplain taught her, as far as we can tell. But her son, uh, Dickie Benelong, a generation later, uh, is kind of institutionalized in uh, a native institution and converts to an apparently evangelical form of Christianity and becomes a preacher. Um, he's one of the first Indigenous Australians to be baptised, uh, which happens in, in, under, in the Wesleyan uh, tradition, and becomes a preacher among uh, his, his people. And so he, he navigates that kind of collision of cultures and the, the disruption of uh, the Indigenous cosmology in quite a different way to his mother. And I think between Buron and her son, Dickie Benelong, that whole spectrum from scepticism and rejection through to uh, an embrace of Christianity in an Aboriginal way, that, that spectrum has existed ever since. And, and like any other group in Australian society, Indigenous Australians have made the full suite of responses to the Bible, uh, rejecting it either sometimes as an oppressive text, uh, embracing it sometimes as a word of life, and sometimes ignoring it as not relevant to what they're, what they're facing day to day. But but the story of the Bible has been wrapped up with the story of settler colonialism, and that's, that's been crucial to the whole thing. One practical aspect of the story is, is getting the Bible into people's hands. So maybe you could just tell us briefly about kind of the business aspect of, you know, publishing Bibles. Who, who was doing it, and, and how did Bibles get into people's hands? Well, the first Bibles arrived um, with the first fleet, as you mentioned, a kind of a donation by an Anglican mission society. And the chaplain brought those out to distribute as part of his ministry. But one of the fascinating things about the story in the Bible, the story of the Bible in Australia, is that um, the spread of white settlement coincides with the industrialization of British publishing uh, and the production of Bibles um, cheaply, quickly, and in mass quantities is kind of a unique thing that happens from the mid 19th century at the very time when white colonists are kind of spreading out and, and um, occupying more and more Aboriginal land. So as white settlement spreads, there's a technological ability, if you like, for the Bible as an object to go with them. Uh, so there's kind of two, two key factors in this. One is um, that 
paper can be made more cheaply, printing can happen more quickly because of steam power, um, and there's uh, an ability to make books uh, in a way that there wasn't even in the late 18th century. And the cheap Bible is one of the iconic products of, of the industrialization of this period. But at the same time, you need uh, a group, why, why the Bible and not say something else? There's, this is the kind of peak of evangelical religion in Britain and its infrastructure. So Bible societies, tract associations, in Australia as well, it's the developing infrastructure of the colonial churches and their, um, you know, all the auxiliaries of the British um, evangelical world uh, here in the colonies. That, that enables, um, that means that there are boots on the ground, if you like, to actually do the work of distributing uh, the Bible. Um, so to give some examples, um, Bible societies in Australia, which were kind of really crucial to an emerging book culture here, they, they did a lot to facilitate the importation of, of Bibles and other related books. Uh, they hired men, normally culprits, to actually literally go door-to-door in remote areas delivering Bibles to um, stockmen, shepherds, um, station workers, um, settlers in more remote areas away from the towns, like literally rowing down rivers and going door-to-door, riding their horses through the bush. It's a kind of the Christian equivalent of the Jolly Swagman kind of on the Wallaby track. Uh, and then in the cities, um, they uh, had uh, what were called Bible women, uh, and they kind of did the job of um, urban Bible distribution, going door-to-door, particularly among working-class families, uh, trying to read a word from the Bible with, with mothers, encouraging kind of the development of godly homes as they saw it. Um, so there's this kind of mass... I would argue that, it's, that the distribution of the Bible was almost a popular cause uh, in the mid-19th century, something people donated to, settlers donated to as a mark of their respectability, um, and something that they saw as a kind of civilising venture uh, for their own among white settler society, um, as well as a, that's also the peak of kind of um, religious adherence and participation among the settler community. There's a... Um, drive to see the Bible distributed and understood that's probably been uh, greater in the in the mid-19th century than at any other time in Australian history. Last question, Meredith, before I let you go, and that is, you know, one of the things that kind of weaves throughout your book is that the Bible has this enduring ability to inform, you know, moral and ethical values, especially as it comes to kind of Australian politics and, and policy, even if only implicitly. So uh, how much has changed in the last 200 years as, and how much hasn't? I think one of the things that makes the cultural history of the Bible uh, distinctive compared to, say, the cultural history of Shakespeare as a text, which is probably its nearest rival for ubiquity in Australian history, is that because it's often received as, in some sense, the Word of God, people have tried to bend their lives to what they understand it to mean uh, and 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 it's kind of had this authority um, to to shape people's inner life and its social ex, uh, applications. Uh, and and one of the one of the common uh, outcomes of that is that its its language and parables have been understood and interpreted in ways that have lifted people's sights above the horizon of self interest. Um, and churches, as we are all too aware, have often failed and been downright destructive in some of their behaviours and policies and, and cultures, uh, but that, that, that the dynamic altruism uh, of uh, a biblical spirituality, if I can use a, a phrase from Alan Atkinson, has been really dynamic in shaping the moral life of Australians since the Bible was introduced here. 
And I think the proportion of people for whom that's true has uh, decreased, I would argue, over, over the last uh, 60 or 70 years at least, since the mid-20th century. But it still has that role in the life of many uh, church-going people. But even more broadly beyond that, I mean, this is what was interesting to me uh, researching the book, was people who are no longer consider themselves Christians, if they ever were, who don't participate in church communities or anything like that, but who recognize in, say, the parables of Jesus or something like that, um, a moral vision that remains compelling. So the novelist Christos Cholkos, uh, who wrote The Slap, his award-winning novel The Slap, has talked about how Jesus' teaching about turning the other cheek is still something very compelling and important to him, even though he doesn't identify as a person of Christian faith. Uh, and there are lots of examples of that in kind of contemporary Australian culture. Reg Mombasa, the Mambo artist, his figure of the Australian Jesus, kind of off, there's a whole suite of kind of artworks critiquing Australia's inaction on climate change, its treatment of people seeking asylum, uh, using um, scriptural figures uh, in ways that often subvert the, the political consensus. And, and the way that even in the hands of people who don't consider it God's word, it still offers a vehicle for moral critique, often of established power. I think that's one of the fascinating examples of how the Bible continues to inform, even in a contested way, debate on these challenging issues that we face today. Meredith, I want to thank you for being on the show today. That's the historian Meredith Lake. Her new book is The Bible in Australia, A Cultural History. It's published by New South Publishing in 2018. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.